The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and soon to be Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day to you, Stephen, and it's an exciting time in American law, isn't it? It is indeed. We have a change in power of the utmost order in the form of President Trump and some of his recent actions, executive orders that call attention to the Immigration Act, Mitch, and I think that's the topic we want to get into today, and we invite, uh, obviously, our listeners to continue to email us. We've had some email questions from listeners recently, and uh, lo and behold, Mitch, they've related to executive power-like questions. So it looks like we're on to something. I don't think there's any surprise that the country's attention is focused on uh, governance by executive order. And as you mentioned, exactly correct. Individuals can email us at comments, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S, at Wagner and Winnick. Dot com, and we will get those emails. And if we if we get them during the show, we'll attempt to to listen. And if not, we will start the next show by picking up those themes. So welcome Absolutely. to email us at comments at Wagner and com. Well, Mitch, you know President Trump has uh, quickly gotten to work here, and obviously he has. Uh, Did you say he's a piece of work. He no, he's quickly. <laughs> He's been businesslike, as per everything that he said. Um, of course, I think what's happening now is he's on a fast track, and it might be a little too fast for everyone. And one of the things we need to talk about is uh, the Immigration Act. And specifically today, I know we want to talk about the refugee ban, uh, Mr. Trump's executive order, which went into immediate effect when it was signed last Friday, suspended the U.S. refugee program for four months and banned for 90 days entry into the U.S. of people from seven countries the U.S. has designated as posing an elevated risk of terrorism. And those countries are Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen. And I'm hoping we can have one little rule of engagement, Mitch, if you don't mind. Can we call it a refugee ban (laughs) instead of a Muslim ban? Well, that's a good part of the the discussion because certainly the major and most immediate act was to 
enacted towards Syrian refugees. And there's no surprise to any of us that, that President Trump had spoken out all through the campaign that he was against the idea of resettling Syrian refugees in the United States. I, I believe we may, with the enactment of this executive order, be the, the only uh, tier one country in the world that has decided that they're going to ban taking refugees of a UN-acknowledged Na, uh, human t- humanitarian disaster, but but he's made no clear he, he's made no question about that. So yes, that part I would agree with you. I would have to say, don't you think it does go beyond that? The the issue of Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, Yemen that that has nothing to do with refugees. That's a that's a ban on immigration from what he defined as Muslim majority countries. Yeah, it, so it is. Both of those things are going on. That's true. And you, I was just trying to sprinkle a little tension out there in, in case you and I differ on some of the, the, the decisions. But I, I just... I, I might differ on this one. Although, you know, I got to say, we start this show with one idea and by the end of the conversation, sometimes we change. So this is true. And then and we meet in the middle, probably, I don't know, 70, 70% of the time. I that. Oh, oh wait a minute. You're not going to start throwing... You know, there's the big number, little number issue with the executive orders where they throw a big number and then a little number and they say it's no big deal. Yeah, no, I wasn't. 70% your big number? (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. I'm just, I I don't know. Maybe I'm feeling prickly this morning. I'll back off some. Okay. So let's, let's, (laughs) let's, let's hit it. Let's open the box on, on the Immigration Act issues and the executive orders, Mitch, and and weave it into obviously some of the legal issues. Uh, You know, the action, no doubt, centers upon whether or not this is appropriate action uh, by President Trump. And when I say appropriate, I think we ought to start with just whether or not he actually has the power. Where is that incorporated? What is the power source, as I like to say? Yeah, and on this, I suspect that you and I are going to agree. I have no doubt, and I do not question his authority to issue executive orders. And so that... that Although that was an argument, ironically, that President Trump brought up during the campaign where he was vehemently against overreaching by executive order by his predecessor, President Obama, uh, I was in favor of Obama's right to do it, and I'm not going to be hypocritical about that. I'm going to say that good for the goose, good for the gander. I don't have any problem with Trump's the concept of the president having the right to issue executive orders. Do you? I do not. Yeah. I thought we agreed on that part. That that's good. We get that one. We'll start yeah. on agreement. <laughs> yeah, I think I think what we want to focus on is just what's what's in or out of play in terms of executive orders. Well, in this case, you know, I also think that the foundation that he issued, the immigration order, the Immigration and Nationality Act, I, I don't disagree with his right to issue orders under that either. Uh, as many of the commentators have pointed out, he is not the first president to issue executive orders that use the the INA, the Immigration and Nationality Act, as a basis. Uh, Obama did it. Clinton did it. You know, the Bushes did it. I mean, they, I think virtually every one of the last six or seven presidents. That's right. That's right. Carter. Yep. Carter did it. So that. So the the foundation of it. Again, I I think we agree that that's not 
off limits. So your question was, would that be off limits? I would have to say not at all. The president has the right to use that as the basis of an executive order. So the, the question is, where did he go with it and how did he use it? And, and that's where I would begin a departure from the president's advice that he received from his lawyers, assuming he received any. Uh, in every prior case, as I've reviewed them, those executive orders went to a specific incident and a specific country tied to that incident. Yeah, that's. I think you're on to something there. So you're, you're, you're referencing the point that the actions, if you look historically, appear to be in direct response to an incident or an event. That's exactly right. So if, the pre- if President Trump had, as he, uh, I guess, attempted to do, said the attacks on 9-11 are the basis for issuing an executive order restricting travel from the countries from where those terrorists came. Well, that would be Saudi Arabia. And I would agree with him. And that happened at that time. And if he felt that that terrorism risk was still in play, I would have no problem with that executive order. But you rattled off the seven countries, and ironically, his executive order mentioned 9-11, but it didn't mention Saudi Arabia. So Okay, so yeah, I see where you're going. So you, you, you're raising the an absence of nexus is kind of where you're going, right? That's a great way to put it. Yes, yes. Okay. So, so when, when there's an executive order or an act Traditionally, your point is that it is usually derived or aimed at addressing something that's happening now is a good way of thinking about it, right? I think that's exactly right because there's an imminence. There's an imminence factor. There is. And the Immigration and Nationality Act really speaks to that because you're you're saying that individuals who would otherwise have legal right to enter this country by existing rules, procedures, and laws. Uh, individuals who had current green cards, which was a pre-existing right to travel into this country given to them by the American government, the U.S. government, because they've gone through the process, that he's going to suspend that. And if he suspends it, I'm with you. I mean, I'm with your definition, at least. There ought to be a nexus. You ought to be able to say, this has now happened. It supersedes these other rights that the United States government has already issued to these people. So in the case of the, it's seven countries, right? Correct. So in the case of the seven countries that are now subject to this executive order, is it your point that those, those countries do not represent immediate threats? Is that where you're going? Well, I would say that that did not appear to be the basis that was issued, that was used in the executive order. I, I'm not, uh, I'm, unlike Steve Bannon, I'm not in those national security briefings. Those seven countries might it be a, an immediate yeah. threat. But, but if we're just looking at the words of the law, and you and I talk about that a lot, and I'm, I hope that this White House will start to take a little more, spend a little more attention on the specific words of their actions, which are have the effect of law, 
we parse these words and and I'm not seeing the nexus. So so whether if there is immediate current threat from those seven countries, they pick seven out of all the countries of the world. I would like to have seen that in the executive order. Yeah. Okay. And I, and I didn't mean to put you on the spot and identify specifically which country may have actually uh, been responsible or actually been the homeland of someone who has uh, committed an act of terrorism or, or really had a profile, so-called profile of terrorist acts. But your point about the nexus is really well taken, Mitch. And I think it, it also relates to the transparency factor that you and I have talked about. And and that relates to executive orders. I mean, how much does the public need to know? How much should they know when the president uh, takes action via executive order? Because things like a nexus or being able to articulate that a certain country, I'll just pick one, Somalia, uh, represents a threat. Uh, you and I always talk about the, the notion of tell me why. Why? That's and, exactly right. And we know that Somalia is a failed state that virtually has no government right now. Uh, yeah. A show on Somalian pirates. And, and That's it's, right. just, it's frightening that you have a country that, that it's really unclear who's in charge, whether it's the pirates or some mix of, of residual uh, tribes and, and individuals. Uh, so there's a country that, okay, in general, it respects, it represents a threat. But but with you, I would like to say, well, why did you put it on there? I, we, yeah. You know, well, well, you know, the reference to the Somalia Somalia pirates and and that kind of uh, high sea terrorism and acts criminal acts on the high seas actually might be a basis, Mitch. I'm not sure. I, I think it's a little bit too much of a broad brush. I'm probably with you on the idea of of it being much more transparent and creating a lot more sort of trust, I think, uh, because I don't care who the president is, executive orders always kind of have a little bit of a, gosh, I don't know, uh, the pens in the king's hands kind of a thing, kind of a tone. No, no question about it. Uh, and then when we come back after the break, we're going to want to talk about, you know, the effect of this, these executive orders and the, their effect on, on the, the effect of them working as law. I want to talk to you about the dismissal of Attorney General, Acting Attorney General Sally Yates. Yes. Well, because that that's another one of the fallouts in which companies have already had to start changing their business uh, practices based on this. So, and, and I think along with that, Mitch, will be other constitutional safeguards that may be implicated, things like free speech, Fifth Amendment, uh, consistent application of the laws and those impacted by an executive order. We might talk a little about sanctuary cities, maybe not full-blown discussion, but I think that also factors in. Uh, I think we're going to get to the issue of you know, even the 1964 Civil Rights Act. You know, We have these uh, huge omnibus laws that have been in effect for decades and building the, I like the way you've said it, the, the building the protections of individuals with freedom of speech and, and the whole gamut of laws of protection. And, and you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law on the, over Voice America. We're going out on a short break. We're talking about recent executive orders and specifically the Immigration Act. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. Mm-hmm. 
Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You're listening to us over Voice America. And today our discussion is recent acts by President Trump, executive order specifically relating to the Immigration Act. And Mitch, uh, before we went out on the break, we referenced Sally Yates. You wanted to discuss uh, the ouster of Sally Yates and some of the facts behind that. Yeah, I think a lot of folks who don't follow it quite as closely as we do may not recognize that name, but the acting attorney general was Sally Yates. She stepped in to head up the Department of Justice. And she took what was a, I think, and I don't know what your background on reading this is, but a pretty unprecedented position of announcing that the Attorney General's Office, the Department of Justice, would not be enforcing 
the executive order on immigration that we've just been discussing and was, I guess, directing all of those attorneys that worked for her to look the other way. Was that your read of, let's uh, talk about what she did? Was that your read of what she did? It, it is, but I would amp it up a little bit, Mitch. I, I really, I think it's a total act of defiance. I can't look in history where somebody has acted in complete derogation of a directive, somebody in that position. I, I think it was outrageous what she did. Okay. And I thought you might, because as, as our listeners know, you, you are a prosecutor. You work in a chain of command of which you have authority to take certain acts, but you work within an organization that has some overall principles in which prosecute. We've talked about it before, prosecutorial discretion, right? Is that a fair comparison? Well, it is, Mitch, but I mean, I, I call it an act of defiance because I don't see anything in the record to suggest that Miss Yates reported to somebody else that she's uneasy about this. It seems to me like she simply pushed play or pushed send. Well, that's that, so I, what I took out of this, and this is where it really set me back, and I'm, I'm looking now at the actual statement from the White House when the statement was, and I'll, let me just briefly quote from it, the acting attorney general, Sally Yates, has betrayed the Department of Justice by refusing to enforce a legal order designed to protect the citizens of the United States. This order was approved as to form and legality by the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel. Now, let's go back. Let me, let me, as you say, let's roll back a bit on that. And let me just ask you, if she, in her position as acting attorney general, disagreed with that being a legal order, because, again, we're talking about the words of, of this statement, what should she have done? What would you have done if you were the attorney general and you had been given an, what you thought was an illegal order? Yeah, that, that's a great way of framing it, Mitch. And, and here's what I would perceive as the proper approach. So in a position uh, such as Sally Yates, obviously you've got incredible amounts of discretion. You've received a direct order to take action. If you evaluate that objectively and find that there's some kind of legal flaws in that order or something that goes a little bit beyond just moral disagreement with it, and there's something and there's something legally wrong about it. There's imperfections in the law or the application or the execution of the law. I think it needs to be vetted somehow. Now, I don't know the exact process, but I think you bring in your peers, your high-ranking management peers, and you have to vet that and get a communication back to the White House uh, in an effort to just articulate the fact that you've got a problem with it. I think that's the way it goes. That's, I mean, as a prosecutor, if I have a problem with, with proceeding on a certain case because I see something in the law that maybe my peers don't, that to me signals that I really have to step it up and find a different target audience, listening audience, to vet the issue. That's I, I, think, I think I would 100% agree with you on that. And, and when, as you said that, uh, two things came to mind. And, and one is... Uh, is the question I have of how well these executive orders are actually being vetted. One would have thought that something of this magnitude would have been vetted through the Department of Justice, perhaps even through the Department of Homeland Security, perhaps through the, the Department of State, 
and although you and I don't have the inside skinny on this, it appears that this executive order came out without any of that pre-vetting to those agencies that historically we would have assumed had weighed in on them, given their legal briefs, argued it out, and come out with language that they agreed was a legally enforceable order. Yeah, and, well, it's, you know, the, President Trump's counsel vets that. I mean, you have to believe that there's some vetting before an executive order is issued. One would have to take that on faith at this point. Yeah, but I'm not talking. <laughs> I, I, well, but what I'm doing, Mitch, is I, I'm trying to stand in the shoes of Yates. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, I get it. Receiving end of something that you find troubling. And again, I'm going to return back to the issue of, you know, morally troubling doesn't work. If you find a legal flaw, you got to find a target audience. You got to talk about it. But hey, share with us that. that, uh, that Let me go to the second part of it because the the second piece that, that I'm concerned is there was an immediacy to this. So there's a, as academics, we can enjoy going back and having conversations and doing some research. But the, the moment that this order was signed, we had individuals on airplanes, at airports, in transit that were within minutes, if not hours, about to be affected by it. So does that change the dynamic for you of the, of this isn't a general order. This is something that was about to affect. And I, I saw one example that one estimate that 90,000 individuals were going to be in the, immediately in the scope of this, not in the air ready to land, but 90,000 were immediately in the category that were going to be affected by this order. Yeah, Mitch, I mean, if you're inviting me to consider that as some kind of factor in mitigation for the acts of Yates, I got to say no, a resounding no. I, I think that just means she has to pick up the phone or find her target audience faster. Yeah, I get, I get it. I think you've, you've struck the, the right balance. Did she do this in a manner that would be expected? And, and I have to tell you that I, too, would be, am troubled by the fact that she would uh, the first step was to go to the microphone, I guess, not to the chain of command, right? That's good. Well said. Yeah. She went That's to the so pulpit first. Yep. But let me go one more step because the, the – so I, I think we've given some folks something to think about on this. Um, I, I, the, uh, you and I agree that the focus, the pivot point on this really is whether it's a legal order or not because the Department of Justice is not uh, – a expected to just knee-jerk do anything anyone says. I mean, they have an independent responsibility, wouldn't you agree, to, to make sure that an order is legal before they take action? Yes, absolutely. So I think we agree on that. And that's why as lawyers, we're, there is some troubling aspect of the way they did it. And then I think we would also agree that perhaps her method of doing it stepped her up to be fired, because I mean, that she is eligible to be fired over taking uh, an action as an employee. And the president had the authority to fire the attorney general. Absolutely. So there's, it's interesting on both hands. I think both of us would have, had we been asked, had they called in to Wagner and Winnick on the law, we might have advised both the White House and Sally Yates to take different. I know, that's true. That could, could have been a neutral hotline moment for us. <laughs> yeah. Should we throw that out there? Should we make that offer? Uh, oh, gosh, I don't know. I, I, I think it runs counter to our mantra that we don't give legal advice on air. But gosh, you got me on that one. That's, that's true. a tempting one, though, I got to say. 
we might make a, a presidential exception that we would provide our legal advice if they wanted to call in and ask us before the next executive order. That's good. It would certainly be good for marketing, Mitch. I think. Hot, <laughs> hot calls from the beltway. Yeah, that's good. So, wait, do wait she- let me ask one last thing, though. Because yeah, also in that order, and this is where, again, I, I think this would fall into our offer to give advice. The next very sentence in that was, Mrs. Yates or Ms. Yates is an Obama administration appointee who is weak on borders and very weak on illegal immigration. Now, what does that sentence have to do with a decision regarding a whether or not she did or didn't appropriately uh, follow a legal or illegal order? I mean, doesn't that make give you a bit of a head scratch on that? Well, Mitch, I mean, that that's got some salt in the wound kind of feel to it. For sure. Are you, say, are you saying that's the language that was included in the term letter? It is. Okay. It's what the White House wrote in their termination of her. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm just wondering why. I, I think you and I came to some agreement as to whether her behavior was appropriate and a fireable offense related to how she reacted to the order. Okay. I get that. I, I, I agree on that. But what... What does her uh, proclivities, her beliefs in immigration policies have to do with it? Is that what exactly. you're Exactly. And you have to dig a little to even find whether or not her prior legal representation as a uh, probably was an assistant attorney general. I mean, I, I mean, at those states, she was, again, just acting on behalf of the government in her position with a, an attorney general senior to her. So I'm not exactly sure how that fits into this narrative. Uh, I'm going with salt in the womb. Yeah, okay. I'll let you off the hook on that one. But it it does, I hope, help individuals understand why certainly lawyers, lawyers like, like us, when we look at the specific words being used in these official actions that have the effect of law, it it should be lawyer-like it should be legal-like Mitch here let me let me do uh, let me polish up the salt in the womb okay and just say this okay I, I think what's happened here is that if there's language and I have to say I haven't seen the letter or the exact language but if there's references in there that actually do refer to her pro- proclivities and let's say casting her as a lefty and perhaps it's anti-american yeah okay sure so, I mean, that trade, weak on borders, weak okay. on legal immigration. So, so let, me, let, me try to, let me try to offer a rationale for maybe including that. And again, I'm not endorsing anything like that. I haven't seen the exact language. But referencing her biases, I think, might be appropriate um, as a means of establishing a nexus between how quickly and indiscriminately she, she acted by shouting out to agency attorneys or getting a notice out to agency attorneys that she shouldn't defend that executive order. So I think the background and character may be relevant. That's my attempt to sort of justify it a little bit, Mitch. I'll I'll let you have that one only because I see that as, as such a tepid defense that if that's the best they can do, I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Okay. Good. That was good. That was a nice little exchange. I, I didn't, you know, I still haven't seen the language. You're going to share it with me. I mean, you shared the invective part and the vinegar. Well, that's the, part. Those are the first two paragraphs. That's the, okay. that I've literally 
read from the statement from the White House from January 30th. Uh, you've got it verbatim from that. Mm-hmm. And then it goes on and talks about who's going to be the, the replacement. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so let's get back a little then to the, <clears throat> the effect. The, you know, the constitutional impact of issues like this are broad-ranging. And so Extremely. it goes to the individuals, right? And we talked a little about the individuals. We read stories about individuals who were turned away at airports, who were turned away, in some cases, arriving in the United States, placed back on an airplane and sent away. In some cases, evidently, individuals landed they were taken in for, uh, you know, they would use the word probably interrogation. Let's soften that and say questioning, or maybe maybe that was the extreme vetting that was being done. Uh, and in some cases, being asked to sign a form relinquishing, even though they had a valid green card, relinquishing their residency rights in order to be, their permanent residency rights, in order to be allowed to then disembark into the United States. Yeah, so you're, you're speaking to the immediate effect and the yes. fact that it did go right into effect and the impact immediately. We're, we're coming up on a break, but Mitch, that's a good way to introduce it. I think what we ought to do when we come back from the break is to expand a little bit on other constitutional impacts. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America. We're going out on a short break. Our discussion today is centered around executive orders, the Immigration Act, and the impact of those orders. Please don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. 
That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. You're listening to us over Voice America, and we have been discussing executive orders, of course, recent executive orders by President Trump, and specifically those that impact immigration. And Mitch, before we went out on the break, we were talking about the immediate impact of the executive order that bans refugees, and I think you wanted to focus a bit on what actually happens when people are in transit, traveling and impacted by the law? Yeah, I, w- one of the things I, I, I hope we'll keep a focus. Sorry, but, Mitch, or the order. I misspoke. Yes, the yes. order. That's, an, that's a significant correction. <laughs> uh, I think what we ought to keep in mind, and it's an important part of the dialogue, are the constitutional rights of everyone. And there's a temptation to say, that those constitutional rights only apply to citizens who are residing here in the United States. And so some of the narrative, which I, I thought was completely off base, is, you know, what do we care about foreigners who arrive in, at an airport? Why can't we extreme vet them and then just ship them off immediately, as actually happened in the early hours of this executive order? We did an entire show on issues related to this, Stephen, if you recall, and and it's important to remind people that the constitutional rights of an individual extend beyond to just the citizens of this country. It's anybody who's in the country. So when this individual arrived at an airport in the United States with a valid green card or a valid visa, both of those were legally permittable documents granted by the full faith and power of the United States government. The Constitution wrapped its arms around them, and they were entitled to due process and protection of equal rights and and equal protection unless there was some other violation going on. And so I was very, very concerned about that that lack of awareness or that lack of of application of constitutional rights. So that's that's where I wanted to, to... really get us to think about that. Yeah, so just to, to conjure up the visual, Mitch, if somebody is actually traveling, a refugee is traveling right. and, and gets onto U.S. soil, let's say as, at an airport, and what I, my analogy would be that they slid into home safely is what I'm kind of thinking about, right? Right. And, of course, quotes would go around home, right? That's right whether or not constitutional safeguards uh, 
are available to that individual that made it in, let's say, to let's go with Logan Airport in Boston. Correct. All right. Yes. And, and, you, and you picked a good one because it's, I, you I did. On purpose because uh, the authorities in Boston said they're not going to apply this executive order. They this were is true. It's very up. Sanctuary city extraordinaire. Absolutely. That's, that's right. So, so the simple answer is those individuals have constitutional protections once they're under the authority of the United States government and the, the responsibilities and protections come equally in hand. We talked about it in terms of undocumented individuals who are in a city. They still, when they're arrested, even though they may be in this country undocumented, they still have the constitutional rights of due process. Sure, that's right. We see it in criminal law all the time, Mitch. We've talked about that, and that would relate to the Fourth Amendment and principally search and seizure. It could also implicate the Fifth Amendment if there's interrogations under the Miranda Law, which is considered to be constitutionally based. And I have my doubts whether those things, those laws, those are pretty fundamental constitutional rights were followed in the waning hour, in the early hours, not the waning hours, the early hours of this order. So, so I bring that up as a reminder that that's a critical part of this dialogue, that the Constitution is very broadly encompassing. I think that's true. You make a good point, and that's a potential hazardous gap area there in terms of whether or not constitutional safeguards apply right upon the entrance into the United States in light of the executive order. The other part is that it does go, let's circle this right back around to the earliest discussion here of, is this an illegal order? Is this executive order enforceable? And whether Ms. Yates was appropriate in her response to it or not, I think her concern <coughs> is valid. And so if, if this executive order was overreaching and it turns out that in its application and, and its immediate application was violative of the Constitution, exactly as you just rolled that out, that it has to be part of the discussion. You asked earlier is the executive order, does it have the force of law? And and I think that's part of our dialogue that we're going to continue to look at. It is, Mitch, and I think the point is that although the executive orders and the breadth of the orders is seemingly very, very vast, your point's very well taken because the impact of the executive order and whether or not it is too far-reaching to the extent that it does impact constitutional rights it would be those constitutional rights or violations, <clears throat> excuse me, that give rise to real vibrant challenges to the order. So, right. so historically, back, we can't. Yeah, we had nexus point. point. It does loop back to your nexus point, I think. And yes. what we may well see is that those orders need to be tightened up. They need to be more specific. They may need. This may result in there being a need for more detail. That's right, and I, I think it's important to note that our entire conversation today has been has been narrowly focused on the issue of law. We've tried to, and to some extent successfully, you better than I, not talk about the politics or the optics of this, because that's a different that's a different discussion. Uh, political that's beings, the president, the legislature, the Congress, they have the right. They are elected as political. Uh, in political election, they absolutely have the right to have political philosophy and political statements about it. But I would put forward that that is very different 
than crafting law. And that the executive orders we have already seen, even though some of these I think will be turned back by the courts as being overreaching and being violative of the Constitution, uh, when they're written, I would hope that those who are penning them have the, the idea that immediately they have the effect of law until Congress or the courts step in. Would you and Mitch, I think that's, that's very um, wise of you to raise that because it's not until an order turns into law or during the actual drafting of the law that the real serious constitutional challenges start to emerge because that's when you trigger other rights, First Amendment, Fifth Amendment, due process rights like that. And I think that's what we will see potentially uh, come out of this. Yeah, and and the, the language of the, the, the executive order and the discussion that follows it, particularly from the White House itself, will become part of the narrative and the evidence if and when these are tested in the courts. Would you agree? I do agree with that. So yes. that... So it's, it's not only, so all of this becomes important. I guess that's what I, you know, I'm trying to shine my light on, all of this. Not just the language of the order, but the discussion that uh, surrounds it by those issuing the order. Yeah, so, so, for example, the, the, we know that one of the very first challenges of this is going to be, was this order a ban based on religion versus based on national origin? And we, I'm fairly certain that if it's challenged in the courts and determined to be a ban on religion, Muslim religion, then it will fail. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if the free exercise clause is triggered as the power source, Mitch, I think you do make a pretty accurate prediction there in terms of likelihood of viable challenge. On the other hand, if it's merely on national origin, I would argue there's a little broader uh, opportunity under the immigration and Naturalization Act that that there could be basis. There has been upheld basis on that. That's and right. the third step is if it can be actually tied to an imminent terrorist threat, there's no question in my mind that it will be upheld. Mitch, you just went up the rung of scrutiny as if you were valedictorian of a constitutional law class. <laughs> How's that for high honor? Seriously, you wow. did. You went through minimum scrutiny, medium, and up to high scrutiny. We've talked about in the past, you know, our discussions when we uh, have Michael join us, of course, are a lot more learned because of his background in constitutional law. But you really did just roll out kind of the hierarchy and the levels of scrutiny. That was pretty good. Minimum, medium, and then you went with terrorism, which is uh, imminent danger, which gives really um, almost unbridled discretion. I, I agree. So, uh, so I would say that our goal is to help listeners start to parse out the dialogue. Uh, if we can get some of the invective put to the side and go to the core of the issues, there are very valid legal issues that have to be walked through this process that you just described. And this is going to be one. It will end up in the courts, no question about it. There have already been lawsuits filed on behalf of the specific individuals who were affected within the hours after the issuing of the executive order. And so people should watch. The listeners should listen and read about this discussion in this manner to see how will this executive order be interpreted legally 
within the existing American law. I think that's right, and we will have an opportunity to talk about sanctuary cities, Mitch, and that's in direct relation to potential lawsuits, too. We'll probably wait for Michael on that topic. That's a, a really good one to talk and, about, federal, okay. state powers. Exactly, and let's, we're teasing it up beautifully. Next, next week, Michael Cohen, constitutional law professor and an immigration and an international lawyer, with Shepard Mullen will be joining us. He's a regular guest co-host, and we are going to hit him with a lot of these constitutional issues since he will be deemed the expert in the room at that time, correct? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. but you're, you're right. Let's talk. We have a few minutes. Uh, let's talk a little about sanctuary cities because that's one of the things I want to focus in on next week. Why is that an issue? I yeah, mean, you know, why, why does that, how does that get into the Constitution? Well, here, here's the interesting thing about that, Mitch, and I, and I wanted to share this because, you know, the idea of uh, partisanship and potential obstructionism, we can't help but avoid that issue. And I wanted to weave it in because, ironically, if you look at police agencies across the nation, there's a real sort of split in terms of how they're receiving or their level of willingness to enforce uh, sanctuary city type laws or go soft on immigration rules. And, and that's an issue that I think we can address with Michael, uh, whether or not law enforcement is going to follow rules. You know, you read about certain cities. I referenced Boston. Certainly San Francisco would be the marquee city that's real soft or milk toast on pursuing these kind of cases. And I'm actually interested in talking about that issue and going to the street and seeing whether or not police officers would defiantly ignore certain rules, you know, because we're, we're, we're talking now about execution of potential laws, right? Yes, yes we are. And that's a great lead into it because between now and next week, I like individuals to th like our listeners think about this. For the constitutional nexus, as you put it, is a federal law versus a state law. And we're going to lump cities and counties into, quote, state laws because they're under the umbrella of that authority. And so immigration is a federal law and is enforced by the federal authorities. And it is not under the mandate of a local police officer or sheriff, correct? That's right. So, so that's where this whole concept or the tension of sanctuary cities or sanctuary states is going to flesh out when we talk about it next week is we have another executive order that says the federal government has been directed by the president of the United States to withhold or withdraw federal funds to any city, county, or state that is designated themselves as a, as a sanctuary city. So that's our teaser for next Good week. tease, Mitch. You've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law, a reminder that you can hear archives of this show on voiceamerica.com. As we suggest to you every single week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. 
I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child. So quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 